hush money heck. I know some things about her, too. <laughs> My name is Blanche, and I'm a very grateful recovering Al-Anon High. Okay. I always say that some days I'm not grateful, some days I'm reluctant and angry, but most days I am grateful. I have been a member of the Aldon family group since July 7, 1964. 24 years makes me a survivor, not a savior, and I say that so that I will remind myself of it, whether you need to hear it or not. If I don't stop right now, I might forget to thank the committee for the invitation. I think it's exciting to be in on beginnings. I always like it if I'm there the first year, a gathering of some sort starts. I feel a little proprietary interest from then on, you know. When I hear about it, I will think. I have one hour with you, and yet um, I, I will feel as if you're sort of, you know, my gathering, my conference. I appreciate being met at the plane. I'm always astonished that someone will fight the traffic and the heat or the cold or the wind or whatever and go to airports. They are not the easiest places to get to. Anywhere on this planet, they are not. And <laughs> I was grateful for Nancy and Gloria meeting me. And they did it with such dignity. I have been met in a variety of ways. And I don't have time to tell you all of them, but um, a few years ago in Southern California, I got off the plane to a group of total strangers singing the Yellow Rose of Texas at the top of their voices. And I have to go over and admit that they're there for me, you know. I mean, <laughs> I can't walk past them and ignore them. And a few weeks ago in Oregon, they had, you know, these card sections at football games? They had nine women standing there with cards in the shape of Texas that said, Hi, Blanche. And I, oh, I do appreciate the creativity, but uh, I tend to be a bit stodgy myself. And so I, I was grateful for being met. When I have a bond with a place, I like to talk about it. It makes me feel that I'm not a stranger to you. I will tell you that... Uh, the year I was married, we were married in September, and we came to Colorado on our honeymoon. Uh, the aspens were golden, and it was incredibly beautiful. And I haven't had a chance since then to see it in the fall. My husband's family had spent the month of August in Colorado, in a little town called Lake City, which is between Gunnison and Creed, every year of his life. So it was a case of, if you married into the family, you loved Colorado. And I love every time I get to come back. We brought our children as often as possible for vacations in Lake City. And then when I was here for the International, it was the first time I'd been to Denver. And um, since then, you've let me talk around the state a few times. At the International, the Alanons in Colorado had embroidered columbines on little pieces of felt. I still have mine framed, and it hangs in the little study that I have at home. So I, I have reminders of you. And there are a great many people in Colorado who have contributed greatly to my recovery. And there are those yoke fellows with whom I have labored in the Al-Anon Vineyard, you know. So I, I love a chance to be here. I am limping a little, and some of you have asked about it. I never do any unnecessary exercise. But um, <laughs> when I get the urge to exercise, I lie down until the urge goes away. But... <laughs> I figure pushing 60 is exercise enough. Thank you. <laughs> but I've been walking an awfully lot lately in an awful lot of airports, and I have an arthritic knee that protests about that. It isn't anything serious. For the last 12 years, I know when I made the decision, so I know how long it's been, 
I have been trying when I'm allowed to share Al-Anon somewhere to talk to you from my heart because I know that that which does not come from the heart does not reach the heart and I very much want to reach your hearts tonight. And that makes me very vulnerable up here. And so I have taken to asking the people listening to please love me back while I am talking because if you do I will be able to feel that. See for years I could talk about the program but not about me. And I could tell you what I thought but not what I felt. And there was no therapy for me in that. I know you didn't come tonight in order to contribute to my therapy, but that's what you're doing. And I thank you for it in advance. I am here to participate and not to perform. And I want us to be in it together. A great many of you have heard my story, and I always tell you, you didn't have to come. You could be watching television. I only have one story, and I can't go out and do it over again. You know, so I'll have something different to tell you. And every time I say that, I think perhaps the stories are never the same. I don't know where we were, you and I, when we last met, when we last touched on our spiritual journey. But I have done a great deal of hurting the last few years and a great deal of loving and laughing and rejoicing, and I hope growing, and I'll bet you have too. So we're not the same people we were when we were last together. I came into Al-Anon kicking, screaming, clutching my halo, wrapping my robes of righteousness about me, protesting to everyone who would listen and a lot of people who really didn't care that I was fine, thank you, I had not done the drinking and I did not need the therapy. I am so grateful that God led me to a group of people who were serious about recovery, who loved me when I was unlovable, who tolerated me when my behavior was condescending and patronizing and well nigh intolerable. I'm, I'm grateful because what I know of the principles of Al-Anon tonight I know because they were practiced lovingly and tenderly on me, not because I read them or somebody told me about them, but because they did these things for me. And I began to learn about the fellowship from this first group. I was with them my first 18 years in the program. And I learned that we are not a ladies auxiliary or a coffee clatch or a sewing circle, but people who wanted to get well. In fact, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about Al-Anon that seem to abound I imagine they are here as they are everywhere else. I used to think that I was a typical untreated candidate for Al-Anon when I got to you, but that brings different pictures to different minds. So I'd like to dispel a few rumors. One of them is that all alcoholics without exception are either handsome or beautiful, talented, sensitive, <laughs> intelligent, and sexy. Have you heard that one? <laughs> I never get any argument on that one. The other side of that coin is that they are inevitably married to dull, mousy people. <laughs> and if that's your idea of a typical Al-Anon, I wish you would forget it. I think we need better public relations. It is not true that Al-Anons make love with their eyes closed because they can't bear to see an alcoholic have a good time. <laughs> not true. And don't believe my friends in Southern California who happen to have a definition. <laughs> they say that they can tell a member of AA from a member of Al-Anon because a member of AA has multiple personalities and an Al-Anon has one or less. <laughs> not true. And it is not true that our third tradition reads the only requirement for membership is a desire to get even. Don't believe it. <laughs> 
And then there are some serious misconceptions. There are those who think that the non-alcoholic in an alcoholic home sat knitting, you know, Priscilla Pureheart, while the alcoholic was doing whatever he did, and some of us did. And some of us did everything the alcoholic did, and we did it cold sober. So I really don't want us to have any illusions about each other tonight. One other thought here, it may not be a problem in Colorado, but it is in Texas. Well-meaning members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think they truly do not know any better, often refer to anyone in their family as an Al-Anon. That's like referring to a still-drinking alcoholic as a member of AA. And Al-Anon is a member of an Al-Anon family group who attends meetings regularly and who works the program. And if you hear anyone else talking about Al-Anon, don't listen. Those people are uninformed. They are not carrying the message, they are spreading the disease. There are some things that Al-Anon is not, and I began to learn these too. We are not cookie bakers and coffee makers. And above all, we are not AA groupies. We, <laughs> we have never claimed to be a therapeutic tool for the treatment of alcoholism. This program does not promise to save marriage, it's only sanity. I thought both of mine were in fine shape when I got to you. <laughs> I live to learn better than that. And happily ever after may not mean walking hand in hand into the sunset. Happily ever after means my personal recovery. So I have a success story to share with you. This program is for me. An analogy that I like to use is my mother's illness and death. I loved this woman with my whole heart. She was the most loving and charming person I've ever known in my life. She died when she was 58, which is not young, but it's young to die. And I thought I could not stand it. I was in Texas and she was in Florida and I had been flying home during the last months of her illness. And on my last visit there, I was crying and I stepped out into the hall and a woman I've never seen before or since in the room across the hall beckoned me. I went into her room and she said, your mother's going to be all right. And I said, you don't understand, her illness is terminal. She said, I didn't say she's going to get well, I said she's going to be all right. And my mother did not get well, and she has been all right ever since. It's very much that way when I got to you. It's as if you had said to me, you're going to be all right. And I would have said, oh, you don't understand. I have a barely sober husband. And you would have said, oh, we didn't say you'd have a sober husband. We said you'd be all right. Or I would have said, I have a very fragile, sick marriage. And you would have said, we didn't promise you a marriage. We said, you're going to be all right. Because somehow that's what I heard. And I have been, and better than that, I know that I will be. Well, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. And I agree with Father Martin, who says that when he's sitting out there and you're up here, he says, you're playing with my life. Don't tell me how sick you got without telling me how well you are. So I hope to spend the major part of my hour on recovery. I was born on my grandmother's farm in northeast Florida in Suwannee County, near the Suwannee River. We were fourth generation Floridians, we were not tourists. <laughs> tourist was a bad word. Anytime I behaved inappropriately, my mother would say, don't act like a tourist. <laughs> <laughs> we moved to Jacksonville when I was still very small, which is on the Georgia border. Lived there 10 years and then lived in Pensacola on the Alabama border until I married and I think of Pensacola as my hometown. My father was a charming, handsome, intelligent, talented alcoholic, and he was violent. I was never, thank God, sexually abused, but I was a badly battered child. 
It was years before I could say that from the podium, and it needs saying. It is not that uncommon in an alcoholic home. And let me say quickly, it is not always the alcoholic who does the battering. It just happened to be that way at my house. This was during the Depression, and we lived in abject poverty. Poverty has nothing to recommend it. It does not ennoble the human character. It is a debasing and a degrading way to live. We didn't have enough food, and we didn't have enough clothing, and we had inadequate shelter. We were living in a very blighted area of the city. And I tell you that to tell you that even there, the neighborhood children were not allowed to play with me. I know now that their parents were understandably apprehensive about what was going on at my house. But I didn't know that then, and I just felt rejection and rage. And not on a conscious level, but somehow I thought I could get back at them. And I did. I could do it in school. I relished every moment of it. I could beat the socks off of them, and that became my way up and out. I began to learn the rules and to follow them. I thought if you didn't like me, you would, by golly, respect me, and people did. And I did the right thing right down the line, and if, if I didn't know what it was, I found out. My mother and father were divorced when I was eight. A couple of years later, my mother remarried. She married a man that, as it happened, did not drink at all. We were never close, he and I, but we both loved my mother very much. So we had an affectionate bond between us. We had the necessities of life then, but no luxuries, and college was considered a luxury. I wanted to go to Baylor University, which happens to be in Texas. It had one of the two best English departments in the South at that time. And my mother said, it's all right with me. There are a few stipulations here. You'll have to pay for it yourself. And it was and is a very expensive university. And she said, make up your mind that you'll spend the rest of your life in Texas because you'll end up marrying a Texan and they don't transplant. <laughs> I told her I was going to do no such thing, but I did, and they don't, and I have, and so. <laughs> I don't have to tell you in Colorado that Texas is a state of mind. <sighs> My father-in-law was a very ardent Texan. I don't know any other kind, and... He said he reared his children never to ask a man where he was from, because if he's from Texas, he'll tell you, and if he's not, it's not nice to embarrass him. <laughs> I know now that it was inevitable that I marry an alcoholic. I don't believe I could have come untreated from an alcoholic home and make a healthy marriage, but I tried not to. I had seen the grief and the suffering, and I didn't want that, so I didn't date anyone who drank at all. And uh, my husband didn't drink at all the four years that we were dating and the first few years that we were married. You told me later that drinking is only a symptom of the illness. And you said it's as if he had had tuberculosis and he had not yet started hemorrhaging. D does that make sense to you? So I, I think it inevitable that I find someone with matching neuroses. And we nourished each other's neuroses for a great many years. I only had a feeling of worth and value when I was rescuing and taking care of. So of course I found someone who would give me a chance regularly to rescue and to take care of. I know now that people don't get sick just as a result of living with an alcoholic. That sick people marry sick people and they rear sick children. Please don't let anyone tell you anything different. I have reared two of them. I was one myself and I have taught and counseled many hundreds of them. We lived in Corpus Christi for a year, then in San Antonio for four years. 
which is next to Austin, the most beautiful city in Texas. If you're ever there, don't miss it. Our babies were born there. And then we moved out to West Texas to my husband's hometown, Odessa. The landscape of West Texas is somewhat akin to that of the moon. <laughs> you have to learn not to let your happiness depend on a tree. My <laughs> Somebody's been there. My mother thought I had moved to the end of the world. She used to call it Odessalate. <laughs> but not where anyone could hear her. But I love West Texas people. They are a breed apart. They don't know there's anything they can't do, so they do it. And it was there that we got our sickest, and it was there that we found you. Looking back, I know that during those awfully sick years, I had some slogans I lived by before you gave me some better ones. I wonder if any of you had these. What will people think? Did you have that one? <laughs> don't rock the boat. How about it's not that bad yet? Uh-huh. Did you ever play Guess What I'm Mad About? <laughs> I thought you did. Charles used to say I could ask him a question, answer it myself, and go away mad. <laughs> of course, I did all the wrong things during those years. And I kept on doing them. I mean, they didn't work and that didn't stop me. I had a cleaning woman a couple of days a week whom I loved and valued very much and miss a great deal. And um, she liked to watch television while she was ironing and she particularly liked football, but she never quite caught on to instant replay. And when there was a replay, she would say, maybe this time you'll catch it. <laughs> and that's how I was. You know, it didn't matter that it hadn't worked before. I protected, I rescued, I lied. This man was almost literally loved to death. And that can happen. I played let's pretend as diligently as he ever drank. I was absolutely obsessed with him and his drinking. You know, of course, that if an Alanon is drowning, someone else's life flashes in front of her eyes. This, this is obsession. And it's a real Alanon trait. I would like you to think that I stayed with him out of love and loyalty. But I didn't, and when I'm this far from home, I need to explain a little. I don't know how it is today, but I grew up in the very deep south. And in my generation, women were giving, given a particular kind of upbringing. We were the steel magnolias. We were expected to flutter our eyelashes and flash our dimples and swish our skirts, but it was understood that we were made of steel and we could cope. Do you remember Scarlett O'Hara in the sweet potato field, you know? I'll never be hungry again. That kind of coping. And one did not air one's dirty linen in public, and if you lived with a man, you didn't criticize him to other people. I was brought up that if you keep the men happy, everything else falls in, into place. If they had added, just don't give up big chunks of yourself to do that, that's not bad advice. I was taught by precept and example that you are a lady in the parlor, a wizard in the kitchen, a hussy in the bedroom. I was told, repeat after me, Blanche. <laughs> I mean, I was really taught that. And so, of course, I stayed. It would have been disloyal to do anything else, and I didn't talk about it. What I did was try harder, try to force solutions. You get the Charlie Brown cartoon strip up here? Charlie Brown's little sister, Sally, is learning long division, and she says to him, how many times will 24 go into 12? And he says, 24 won't go into 12, and she says, it will if you push. <laughs> that was the way I approached every problem. I had the Al-Anon drive to fix it. 
After all, I had a very inauspicious beginning, and I had paid my way through a prestigious and expensive and very fine university, and I had married the man I wanted, who was handsome and brilliant and could be charming. I had the children I wanted when I wanted them, and I did work that I loved, and I had no understanding of nor tolerance for people who messed up their lives. I figured if I could cope, anybody could. I know how self-righteous that sounds tonight. I did not know it then. I did a few things right. I used to think by accident. I know now by the grace of God. I never called Charles a drunk. I never thought of him that way. I was married to a very fine man who drank too much, who had what my Irish grandmother called the failing. <laughs> and at some level, I knew he was sick. At least I knew he wouldn't be that way because he wanted to be. And I had a God whom I worshipped and served, not the God of my understanding tonight, but I hope that in another 24 years I have a deeper and broader and more meaningful understanding of my higher power. And I had a doctor who was Al-Anon before I found you, and I say that because it was he who kept saying, you have to do what's necessary for your sanity regardless. And he gave me permission, and the way he did it was he knew just which button to push. He said, your children need one stable parent. Well, need was the operative word. You need me and I am putty in your hands. <laughs> this man wrote on a prescription pad that I should return to teaching. I had taught school before my children were born, but I thought a good mother stayed in her home. Besides, I very much wanted to be with them. And I'm very grateful that financially I could. I was home, I guess, the first 12 years of their life, something like that, a long time. I'm not a spontaneous person. When he wrote out this prescription, I wish I were. I've worked my way up to flexible, but I will never make frivolous. And I, uh, I thought about it for a year, and then I decided uh, I, would, I would do that, and I taught English in a very fine, very affluent high school. It was, uh, sometimes I get an argument about 17-year-olds se constituting therapy especially if you have 150 of them a day. And I try never to talk without saying, don't criticize kids to me. I mean, you'll have to fight me first. And as gently as I know how to say it now, I know more of them than you do. I've accumulated several thousand through the years. And in an English class, once they trust you, they are willing to talk about and write about what they feel. And I think I got to know them better than perhaps math or science teachers. And they were a tremendous enrichment in my life. Certainly some of them had trouble growing up, but my world is full of people who have trouble grown up. So that was not a great surprise. Now, it was not, not one long honeymoon, okay? There were days when I wished for retroactive birth control, but not usually. <laughs> I teach community college now, and it's not that different. We were pretty sick, and to Charles' credit, he never stopped trying to find an answer. We suspected mental illness. We didn't suspect alcoholism. He didn't drink in the mornings. And he drank only at home, so he wasn't arrested. And he uh, was not violent. And that was not my picture of an alcoholic. And certainly I, I, I knew that he was drinking too much. But I didn't think alcoholism, because alcoholism in my mind included those other things. And so he went to counselors and to both our local psychiatrists. We went through them pretty quickly. He went to medical doctors, and he went through clinics, and he went to ministers. And nobody ever said alcoholism. Finally, someone suggested to him that he call a woman who was doing counseling then in Odessa, a, a psychologist. And she was a strange, eccentric lady. 
It'll tell you something about her when I tell you that his first appointment was at 12.30 a.m. And it'll tell you something about him when I tell you he was there. He, met, he kept it. And they had been seeing each other at odd hours for about six weeks. It was January of 1964 when she called me. Are there moments in your life that are so lucid, so graced, that you remember every detail? I remember the carpet, you know, the curtains, the furniture, everything about that moment. She told me her name, and of course I recognized it. She said, your husband is an alcoholic. This is a family illness. I need to talk to you, too. And all of my deep south upbringing went out the window, and I said, you're out of your mind, and hung up. <laughs> now, that wasn't the way I was reared. If you had trouble getting along with somebody, you could be kind but cool. And I wasn't either of those words in any of their meanings. I hadn't left the room when the phone rang again, and when I picked it up, before I could say hello, she said, don't hang up. I know what you've been through. Well, she couldn't know. I hadn't told anybody. <laughs> she couldn't possibly know. And I, who thought that all the tears had long since been shed, I stood there with that phone in my hand, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried. That was your first gift to me, the freedom to cry. I cried any time I pleased now. Charles used to say I could cry reading menus or telephone directories. <laughs> Not really, but supermarket openings sometimes. <laughs> it was this counselor who sent us to you. And for six months, I went only to open meetings. And if anyone had the questionable judgment to invite me to Al-Anon, I was kind but cool. And I explained that I had not done the drinking and I didn't need the therapy. And if my husband got sober, everything would be fine at our house. I can't say it with a straight face tonight, but I believed it then. And I wouldn't go to an open meeting where he was due to get any memento of sobriety. Do your groups do that? We gave poker chip key rings, 30 days, 60 days. I didn't want to hear him say, my name is Charles and I'm an alcoholic. The 4th of July weekend was coming up and we had loved living in San Antonio and we went back. And Charles got drunk and he always said, I must say, it was not a slip, it was a carefully planned drunk. I know now that I was not surprised. I didn't expect him to quit drinking. That attitude must have helped him a lot too, don't you think? <laughs> he never drove, drinking or hungover. And so I was driving back home. And he said, I'll have to tell the group about this. I'm due to get a six-month chip next week. And in my appalling ignorance, I said, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> and he explained to me that's not the name of the game. I have to tell you that to say that's what got my attention. We had been married 14 years at that time, and this man had never once said to me, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I made a mistake. And he was going to go down there and say it to some people he had known six months, and it made me mad. <laughs> In one of our Al-Anon pamphlets, Living with Sobriety, we are told while sobriety can be a welcome miracle, it does not guarantee happiness. And we had a very stormy and difficult sobriety. I believe I'm quoting Bill Wilson accurately, who says we consider that man unthinking, who says that sobriety is enough. It is essential, but it's not enough. A woman invited me to Al-Anon, and I used to say, I don't know why her invitation reached me when no one else has had, but I have done three, I think, very thorough and comprehensive fourth and fifth steps in 24 years, and with the very first one, God revealed to me far more than I was interested in knowing about myself. And one of them was why I could hear her, and rigorous honesty requires that I tell you. This was a woman I thought was as good as I was. I'm sorry, it takes what it takes, okay? Uh, she had everything I considered important. She had beauty and breeding and brains and status and money and prestige. 
and she still has everything I consider important. But it's certainly a different list tonight. She became my first sponsor. And she was my sponsor for 11 years until she moved away, and I got another one. And if I had an hour extra to talk to you, I'd talk about sponsorship. I don't under understand the kind of ego that presumes to undertake this exciting spiritual journey unguided and undirected and alone. That's, that's another topic. I won't, I won't get off on it. I said that we had a stormy and difficult sobriety. The first 18 months were unmitigated hell. Charles was stark raving sober and he was very much aware of all of my defects of character. <laughs> he was no longer held back by guilt from mentioning them loudly and clearly and frequently. As Clancy says, when the alcohol is gone, the ism remains. And this is what we had to live with and from which we had to try to recover. And my overlay of fantasy we are nice people, we are normal family, it was as hard for me to give up, I think, as his drinking was for him. You must understand that I had married considerably above myself. He always said I shouldn't say that, but I did. I married into a family with money and prestige and uh, history, and there was nobody not allowed to play with me anymore. And that was essential to me. And whereas I had prayed for help, I thought God was showing very poor taste. I really didn't want to go down there with those people. And I in such bad shape. Of course we are when we get to the program. I was so emotionally frozen. I didn't think this on a conscious level, okay? But during the worst of the drinking, you cannot watch someone you love with every cell of your being destroying himself and be helpless to do anything about it. You can't live with that kind of pain. And so it's as if I thought that feelings had valves and I turned off the one marked anger and I turned off, I thought, the one marked self-pity and resentment. And what I didn't know is there's one valve and it's marked feelings. And I really was frozen when I got to you. And you loved me back to life. And you certainly know up here how it hurts when something which has been frozen begins to thaw. And for years when I felt a little pain in a new place, it was a little pocket of frozen feeling that still had not yet thawed. It has been years since I had that happen. And of course I had defenses, you know, these walls. Some people came into our group saying that when the drinking was at its worst, they hid. They didn't answer the door, the phone, you know, they pulled down the shades. My reaction was to join everything in town and I ran most of them. <laughs> and I I couldn't understand after several weeks why you didn't ask me to be president. My feelings were hurt. You obviously didn't know who I was. <laughs> the barrenness of busyness was my narcotic. And if I kept it a dead run, I didn't have to think too much or too often. That was my defense. I no longer batter at people's defenses, by the way. I used to, you know, let me in. I want to be your friend. I have decided that's kind of an emotional rape. I know now that if someone looks out from the chink in his armor, we can smile and let him know the natives are friendly, you know. And if we are warm and loving enough, eventually these people will put down their sword and in time perhaps even their shield. At least that's what happened to me. And I began to hear you. And I did not hear the program from one person or all at once. And I certainly don't have it all now. But I began to hear do you realize that you're sick too? See, alcoholism was not trendy 24 years ago. It was not the end thing. There were not treatment centers on every corner. 
and announcements every 30 minutes on television and nobody knew that the whole family was sick. There was a terrible stigma attached to alcoholism. My group used to say that we don't hear the answer until we've asked the question and I got there knowing all the answers so I didn't hear anything for a very long time. My sponsor realized that and she said you can't teach someone who already knows everything. I wonder if you could give up some of your old ideas, she said. God can only fill an empty vessel, she said. We cannot put new wine in old bottles. Mark Twain said about his book Huckleberry Finn, he said it is better to follow a sound heart than a deformed conscience. Well-meaning people had deformed my conscience and I dare say yours too. I was taught some things that are not true and I had to unlearn them before I could hear you. One of them was that God helps those who help themselves. Were you brought up on that one? He does not, you know. He helps those who ask. And at the times I needed him most desperately, I could not have helped myself if my life had depended on it. Sometimes I think it very nearly did. God helps those who ask. And I was brought up to stand on my own two feet, that mature people do not ask for help. I didn't ask directions in a strange town. I, I bought a map. And you said to me, well, babies are dependent. Adolescents are independent. I'll do it myself. And mature people are interdependent. And we have a very healthy need for each other. I'm not talking about a sick, clinging kind of dependency. I know now that some pain is necessary for my spiritual education, but misery is optional. And I do not opt to be miserable very long anymore. If you could see my long distance charges, you would know that I learned to ask for help. If I can't make it through the night in Texas, I have a friend in California who's still awake, who says I only love her for a time zone. <laughs> and if even she's asleep, there's, there's Hawaii. <laughs> and you told me that I had not only a right to, but a responsibility for taking care of myself. That that was no one else's job. That it was no one else's assignment on earth to make me happy that I did not acquire squatter's rights on someone's life because I married it or gave birth to it. And that included, you said, taking care of myself emotionally. So I learned that some pain can be avoided. I do not have to die on every cross. There are people and places that I do not have to be around. I was taught, and you were too, that we put everyone else first and ourselves last. And I have a sponsor who says, not so. The first thing you ask about any situation is what is in my best interests. Now, I'm not talking about me first, okay? I'm talking about my turn. Well, you can't say what is in my best interest and be a martyr. And I had suffered so nobly, you know, nobly. I have a friend who says she had that plastic surgery to remove her hand from her forehead when she got into Al-Anon. <laughs> And the other question I must ask in a difficult or a challenging situation is what will enable me to like myself later? And these questions got me through an agonizingly painful divorce a few years ago. I can't tell you how good it feels to know that I would not change one thing I did or said during that time. I was taught that I don't have to like any situation, but it is imperative that I like myself in it. And I try to behave in such a way that I can. And at, at the risk of sounding like a heretic, sometimes I say no in Al-Anon. You know, every time that phone rings, it is not God calling. And I have to say no more than I can say yes, or I would have nothing to bring to you when you let me come. I was also brought up that what you don't know can't hurt you. 
What I didn't know nearly destroyed four people. You know, what you don't know can kill you. And so slowly, I began to unlearn so that I could learn, so that I could hear from you. And I got so greedy for this program, I did not want to settle for a spiritual band-aid, you know. I didn't want crumbs. I knew there was a banquet spread. And I'm attracted to people who are greedy for this program. I understood you when you said stick with the winners. And I began to hear some of your principles. Of course, the basic one in Al-Anon is to release, to let go. They said, if you don't like the warts, let go of the frog. I did not like the warts. I did not like the person I had become. I am not basically a bitch or a shrew, and I was both, and I didn't know myself anymore. And I would have turned him over to the Ku Klux Klan or the Communist Party or anyone who would have taken him. And my sponsor kept saying, no, no, that's not the idea. You are detaching with love. <laughs> you know, once more with feeling. And I began to get the hang of it. Now let me say that even today, there are times when I release with anger before I can with love. And there are times when I have to withdraw emotionally for a while before I can let go. And anything I've ever released in my life has bloody claw marks all over it. <laughs> but I can do it pretty well today. And, and I learned that God could work directly through my husband and children. I didn't know that. I thought he had to come through me. I had always told them God's will for their lives. They didn't even have to ask. <laughs> that is such a symptom of untreated Alanonism, just to rush in and rescue, you know. And today I can listen to your feelings without trying to fix you. Now all of me wants to fix you, but I bite my tongue and I sit on my hands and I can listen. You told me we don't give each other advice in the program. And I thought, how can you help anybody? And what my group taught me was that we can help people see their available options. We do that for each other, I think, one of the most valuable things we give each other. See, when I got here, I thought I had three options. I could divorce this man, I could live with him while we both tried to recover in our programs, or I could have a close, warm, loving, communicative marriage. Unfortunately, I opted for number three, and that was not one of my available options. And even today when I'm miserable, it's because I have opted for something that was not an available option for me. <laughs> I think the people who help me see what my options are are wonderful, but oh, I value those who help me see what they are not as well. And I had to quit translating. Did you ever translate? Now, honey, what your daddy meant was, <laughs> yeah, you're exhibiting what psychologists call a recognition reflex. <laughs> um, our kids were in the Alateen program 10 years each. They went in when we had a preteen group, and they stayed until they were the world's oldest Alateens. There will be a special place in heaven, or an especially beneficial karma. Take your pick for Alateen sponsors. When I got to you, I would tell you if you'd listen how much their father had damaged these children. And you told me how much I had damaged them, and I thought I could not stand it. It is still so painful for me to look at that. I would give anything I possess if they had not been programmed by an enraged mother. Even more harmful than that, I think, was the denial. My children were 9 and 10 when we got to you, so they were very little during the drinking. And they knew something was dreadfully wrong. Of course they knew. And the woman they should have been able to trust and believe above anyone in the world, their mother, was saying to them, Oh, it's all right, honey. There's nothing wrong. Of course kids grow up doubting their reason doubting their judgment, doubting their senses when they have been treated like this. I had a choice during those years. I could go or stay. Those kids had no choice. 
there is a resentment toward non-alcoholics. We cannot generalize, okay? But when I was on the literature committee in New York, we, every year we discussed the feasibility of writing a pamphlet for Alateen on their resentment toward the non-alcoholic because unless the alcoholic is violent, it is often greater. After all, as far as they could tell, their father was asleep on the sofa. They didn't know pa passed out, you know. But what was wrong with this crazy woman who was yelling and screaming and throwing things, who did all the discipline, who was the villain and the heavy? Which one would you resent? Of course they did. I don't have time to tell you some marvelous stories of having the entire family in the program, but I do recommend it. I had to get my responsibilities straight. I felt responsible for the weather, for earthquakes in Peru, for the assassination of public figures, <laughs> and certainly responsible for his drinking. He said I was, and I believed him. I have figured out why we take on inappropriate guilt, by the way. I think sometimes the first step was written more for us even for the, than for the alcoholic because we assume so much power. We thought we had the power to get someone drunk or get him sober. And if I didn't take the responsibility for it, I had to admit I was powerless. Do you see what I mean? And I, and I couldn't do that. I could not admit that I was powerless over this, so I just assumed responsibility constantly when it wasn't mine at all. And after all, you had removed my whipping boy, my scapegoat. Look, next to an alcoholic, anyone looks good. And any defect I had, I could blame on the problem, you know, capital P, and I did. And it was difficult for me to take responsibility for my own behavior. People were praising him. They were saying, 30 days, Charlie, hang in there. You know, 90 days, way to go. Nobody thought I was wonderful. They were hinting rather broadly that I could use some help and that had never happened to me in my life, and I had to give up my responsibility for his behavior. You told me I could respond rather than react. See, if he got angry, I got angry. If he got depressed, I got depressed. I thought that meant we were close. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know about emotional slavery. It's as if I waked up every morning and said to him, good morning, how do I feel today? <laughs> it was entirely up to him. And you suggested that I take my sails out of his wind. And you said neither he nor anyone else need decide the direction in which you go. I'd like to tell you that no one ever has since then. I can tell you it doesn't happen often anymore. <laughs> I have taken the risk of being who I am. I was brought up to find out what you need and be it. And oh, I'm good at that. And I have forced myself year after year now to be who I am within the bounds of love and courtesy and hope that's enough for you. I know that I can choose my response today and that it doesn't depend on situations or people or places or events. It costs a whole lot to be who you are. It's emotionally expensive. It cost me a marriage. But it was costing a great deal more to keep up that facade of being wise and wonderful. I do recommend it. I didn't learn this all at once, you know that. And I sure don't have it all, but I learned it slowly and painfully, you know, incident by incident, through blood, sweat, and tears, one day at a time. And there's still some days when I think, what program? God who? And there's always someone I can call who will tell me what program and God who. Usually in the words I've given them, I hate that. <laughs> when they say, well, as you've told me, and I said, don't do that to me. I don't, I don't need to hear that tonight. <laughs> you told me that I don't have to be perfect. You said that practice makes progress. 
that recovery is progressive too, not just the illness, but recovery is too. And you gave me permission to have relapses. It's a good thing because, oh, I have them regularly. I'll share one with you. It happened a few years ago. I was visiting my son in Dallas. Bright, sunshiny day, I was coming down the stairs of his condominium. I have an arthritic knee that I can't trust, and it gave way, and I fell. It was a very bad fall, and I was unconscious. He called the paramedics, who came and got me to take me to a hospital. I don't remember any of that. But when I was being lifted from the stretcher in the ambulance to the gurney in the emergency room, I came to in time to hear the emergency room nurse saying, now just lay back and take deep breaths. And coming out of total oblivion, I said, honey, that's lie back. I will lie back and take deep breaths. <laughs> I passed out again, but when I, <laughs> when I came to, I couldn't shut up. I said, you see, dear, you say it so many times a day, you really should learn to say it correctly. <laughs> My son was covering his eyes with his hands. He was saying, she doesn't do this to total strangers usually. Really, she doesn't. Fortunately, the nurse thought it was funny. But my point in telling you is, let my defenses get down, and I'm going to straighten out the world. And that is an untreated pocket of Alanonism with which I cope. Of course, I talk the talk better than I walk the walk. Of course, I do. But I walk the walk better than I feel the feeling, and I'm still the best Blanche that I have ever had. And to you who are new, I would like to tell you that I, too, live on the growing edge. And what I'm learning today is just as new and scary to me as what you're learning after one year or five or ten. I need a hand to hold while I look around corners, you know. And I have never reached out that there hasn't been a hand there. Sometimes I'm awed by the recovery of new people. They hit this program running, and they learn more in one year than I learned in five. I have figured out why. We didn't have us. Make sense? There was no one in Al-Anon who'd been there five years or ten. Al-Anon hadn't been around for 20. My sponsor had 13 months. I thought she knew everything. We had one hardback book and ten pamphlets. And whereas I can rejoice in this quick recovery of new people today, I'm also a little envious. And then I think, no, I wouldn't have missed being in, in the early years. These children are fine today, thank you, and I mean literally thank you. They've both been married and divorced. When my daughter was married and was planning her wedding, okay now, you told her in that subversive organization, Alateen, you told her she could be who she is. And she said there was no rule that said your attendant has to be a girl. And the person she loved most was her brother and she wanted him to stand with her. And when I opened my mouth to give them the benefit of my wisdom, <laughs> Her brother said, hey, I've never been a bride's person before. <laughs> the groom said, well, in that case, I'm really closer to my sister than I am my brother. You're way ahead of me. <laughs> so we had a best woman and a man of honor. <laughs> it was a beautiful wedding. I sat there crying, as the mother of the bride is allowed to do, thinking sobriety made this possible. My son, well, let me finish telling you about her. You're a captive audience. You won't get up and walk out, and I am a very doting mother. She is a journalist. She is assistant city editor of the Clearwater Bureau of the St. Petersburg Times. Now, the St. Petersburg Times is a very prestigious newspaper, which you don't know if you're not in journalism, and I'm not, but she told me so. 
and she makes twice the money I do, and I'm just enormously grateful for her. I almost said proud. You taught me the difference between pride and gratitude. I have an English teacher thing about definitions, and I had a student once who taught me that we can't always go by the dictionary. We were arguing in a friendly manner over some word, and I said, now listen, the dictionary says, and he said, you can't always go by the dictionary. Well, you would have thought he had spit on the flag, you know, I was aghast. <laughs> he said, hey, the dictionary says a dog is a four-legged canine animal, and if you've ever had one, you know that's not a good definition. And I've had some dogs and cats and hamsters, and, you know, and I know that's not a good definition. So I'm not talking about the dictionary definitions here. But I know that there were a great many things in which I took pride. And I began to listen to my friends in AA talk about their sobriety, and I never heard a sober alcoholic say he was proud of it. Without exception, I heard them saying they were grateful for it. And I began to realize that maybe these things, these achievements in which I had taken pride, were truly gifts for which maybe I should be grateful. And so I'm grateful for these children. My son is a photographer in Dallas. He's a commercial photographer, and he's very good, and he's very successful. He has won two Cleos, which is the highest award you can win in advertising. And he's the only photographer ever to win two of them. He was the first one out of New York, or another country, to win one, and the Dallas papers and trade journals made a big thing of it. I have to tell you, because they never once said, Rob Debenport, the son of. Never. Not once. <laughs> and that's okay. I certainly know where their talent comes from, and it's not from their mother or father. I know who the source is. We date the people we meet, and he meets models. And so when I see him, he has one of these gorgeous young things on his arm, and they all weigh 36 pounds and have legs up to their armpits. <laughs> I have told him if I want to feel frumpy, I can stay home and iron. He doesn't have to <laughs> contribute to it because you didn't turn loose out of them for 10 years. You repaired some of the god-awful damage that we did these kids. They haven't had to drink or do drugs or be promiscuous. They have had loving relationships and that doesn't bother me. They uh, are caretakers. I have reared two classic enablers, <laughs> textbook enablers. They, uh, they have done the right thing too. They've never even had a cavity, you know? I, I tell them to tell the dentist that that was excellent parenting. And the dentist says, no, it was fluoride in the West Texas water. <laughs> They've never had a traffic ticket. But oh my goodness, they have the symptoms of people who grew up in an alcoholic home. And they know it, and they're doing something about it. And that's all I can ask of them, or for them. Now I'm going to have to tell you something that I'm afraid you will hear is bad news. Please don't. It really isn't. It was what was necessary next for my recovery and for Charles. You know that relationships die, even as people do. And Charles and I lost our marriage for a variety of reasons that it would not be at all appropriate for me to go into from a podium. For three years we tried to revive it. It was like giving artificial respiration to a corpse. I remembered you telling me that marriages made in sickness often don't survive health. Now because people who love us want to know, I have always almost always remember to say no he didn't leave me for another woman and no I didn't throw him out for another man and no he did not resume drinking he would have had 24 years of sobriety in July he died in April of oat cell carcinoma it was a while before I could talk about the divorce 
and I cannot yet talk about his death. When I can, I will. Our recovery had taken us down different roads and in different directions. Something toxic happened when we tried to relate to each other that didn't happen when we related to other people. It had become a destructive relationship and we cared too much about each other to destroy each other. We could not have gained any further recovery in the framework of a marriage that was sick beyond healing, that had been damaged beyond repair. It was not a lack of love, but if you don't know by now that love is not enough, you haven't been paying attention. And so we released each other with dignity and respect, we really did, to find new lives and new directions. We tried to remain friendly, but I would be lying if I told you we were friends. Friends share feelings, you know, friends joy in each other's presence. If we could have done that, we could have stayed married. But I will tell you that there's no villain here. No one had to wear a black hat. And lest you think that this is a storybook divorce, I will confess that I was absolutely enraged that this man was able with new friends and after a few years a new wife to do and be everything I'd always wanted him to do and be, but he either could not or would not within the framework of our marriage. On my saner days, I could rejoice in this evidence of his recovery. And the rest of the time I was just furious that these people were getting effortlessly what I had yearned for for 30 years. Hey, nobody wants divorce. That is not in anybody's game plan. I wanted us to grow old together, to watch our grandchildren playing, to put our teeth in the same glass on the nightstand. But I never was more healthfully Al-Anon than when I decided I too would go to any lengths to get well. Because you didn't turn loose of them all that time, these kids were able to be mutually supportive. The weekend that Charles moved out, our son came out from Dallas to help him move. And he would alternate taking something to his father's apartment and holding me while I cried on the sofa, and then taking something else to his father's apartment and then sitting down and holding me a while. And two weeks after the divorce was final, on the day that would have been our 30th anniversary, our daughter called and said, I know this has been a difficult day for you. Ending a long marriage is like an amputation. It may be necessary for survival, but the agony is intense, and there is phantom pain where the relationship used to be. You had told me all those years that the tragedy of suffering is not that it happens, but that we let it be wasted. And I knew that this pain should not be wasted, and you had said, I cannot back God into a corner, shake my finger in his face, and say, why me? After all, why not me? but I should ask, what am I supposed to understand? And so I've been asking that, and not all the answers are in yet, but there are a few. I'm supposed to understand that I don't have to know what the future holds because I know who holds the future. And you know, for a woman of my generation, this is a biggie. I understand that I'm a whole person without a man. And uh, the men who are in my life today are there because we both want them to be, and not because one of us has a loose umbilical cord they we're trying to plug into the other for a life support system. <laughs> People who love learning go back to school in times of stress. It's like back to the womb. So I decided to go get another degree and I began to investigate graduate schools. I hit a nerve there somewhere, didn't I? <laughs> I, of course, picked the longest, most difficult master's program I could find. What else? At the University of Texas in Austin, it was 54 hours and a thesis and it would take three years. I said to my children, three years? Do you know how old I'll be in three years if I go get a master's degree? And my son said, how old will you be in three years if you don't? (laughs) 
so I sold my house and moved to Austin six years ago. It was very, very difficult to leave the home my kids grew up in. I could hear my son playing with his dog in the backyard, and I could hear my daughter giggling with her friends in her room, and I could feel the vibes of all the program people who had come through that house through the years. It was my comfort zone. But I learned that the house is only brick and wood, and I could take the memories with me, and that anywhere I live is God's house. Hey, you would have laughed to see me in graduate school. I kept wanting to teach the class. <laughs> if, if I thought they didn't understand, I wanted to say, now, honey, what the professor meant was... <laughs> And I wanted to correct the professor's grammar, but I don't do that when I'm conscious. <laughs> and in 1985, I got that degree in counseling psychology. And before it and for a while after it, I worked part-time at Austin Community College as a counselor. I now am the only counselor in little country school that has, I have kindergarten through 12th grade. And as Shirley indicated to you, it's a, it's a whole new world. <laughs> uh, I also teach a class one night a week at the college. It's a class in um, human sexuality. They require that it be taught by a counselor. It's interesting convincing them that you're qualified to teach it. <laughs> I mean, after all, no one majored in it in college, although you and I know people who tried, <laughs> didn't we? <laughs> and uh, one thing I love about teaching sex, my kids think this is a riot, by the way. They say that they never thought of their mother being the Dr. Ruth of Austin. But it's so much more fun. In teaching English, I would often hear what I never hear in the sex class, which is, what are we studying this for? We'll never use this. <laughs> These kids never argue about the relevancy of it at all. My hour is up. I have to thank you for loving me back, because you did, and I felt safe with you. There are some lines in one of our Al-Anon books that say today this very moment is all you're sure of. And that flashing instant is going to join the past even before you are aware of it. With this dizzy spin of time, the only safe way to make each moment count is to make Al-Anon responses habitual. You can't go wrong following Al-Anon's teachings. With them, there's no regret for yesterday, there's guidance for today, there's hope for tomorrow. And it is this wish with which I leave you I wish for you no regret for yesterday and guidance for today and hope for tomorrow.